And we're in the book of John, starting at verse 36 of chapter 13. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you can follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Jesus comforts his disciples. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Julie. My name's Leon. It's my privilege to be your preacher tonight. And for that reason and others, let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word says that faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of God. And we've just heard the very word of God a word to us, ancient and yet contemporary, relevant to a group in a room 2,000 years ago, and it stretches across that span of time and is relevant to us. So we would pray and ask that your word and your spirit be at work tonight, bringing faith in us as we hear it. As I seek to explain it, as we seek to understand it, help us in that task and give us ears that are open and hearts that are soft to your word, that we might indeed be changed by it and encouraged through it. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. She says, what seems to be troubling you? And I just blurt out, oh, where do I start? I mean, off you go. I'm 40-something years old, you can work it out, I've got four kids, and, and it's a little bit selfish, we were in the doctor's surgery, in the doctor's waiting room for my daughter this week, and she was more interested in what was troubling her than me, but it's the typical question, isn't it, what seems to be troubling you, and then you're meant to reel out the symptoms, and then you match the symptoms to what the problem is, and you come up with some level of diagnosis, but What if it isn't just a head cold, but there's something bigger that's troubling you? 
I mean, think about it for a moment. This week, what's troubling you? What's on your mind? Woken up? Those automatic thoughts that come? Um, Perhaps they're things as you reflect back on the past or they're things that you're uncertain about the future. Maybe they're very big things. You're you're worried about um, global things, political things. You're worried about societal changes and shifts. You're worrying about maybe existential things, about purpose and identity and meaning. Or maybe they're smaller things. They're not smaller to, to, to you. They're the biggest thing in your mind at the moment, but they're, they're just located in your hemisphere. They'll, they'll be gone in a month, but they're the biggest thing you're dealing with. They're, they're troubling you. What seems to be troubling you? And where do you go? What do you do when you're troubled and you're afraid? Is it a panic? Is it a fight response? You, 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 you lash out. Or is it a flight response and you run? Jesus in John chapter 14 verse 1 says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. <laughs> it's nice to say it, isn't it? But can you achieve it? To not let your heart be troubled. Now he's speaking to his disciples, 11 of them. Judas, remember back in chapter 13, he's no longer with them, he's left. Uh, We know that he's left in order to betray Jesus. Immediately before this, Jesus has just turned to the most ardent vocal follower that he's got, Peter, and told Peter that he's going to deny him. He's already told that same group several times this evening that he's going to be leaving them and where he's going, they cannot follow him. And yet they've been following him month after month and year after year. They are his disciples. And he says, where I'm going, you can't come. All of those things are troubling, aren't they? And of course, there's a sense in which we're not meant to forget that Jesus himself has revealed himself to be troubled in John's Gospel. In fact, in this very chapter, just as he's spoken about the fact of Judas leaving and betraying him, we're told that he is troubled in spirit. Chapter 13, verse 21. Not the first time, though, that we've heard that Jesus is troubled. At the tomb of Lazarus, when he comes to that scene and sees the death of his friend, And no doubt the mourning of all these people that are failing to recognise that he is the one who is the resurrection and the life. We are told in verse 30 of chapter 11 that Jesus was troubled in his spirit. And in the following chapter, in chapter 12 and verse 27, Jesus predicts his death. And when he does that, it says of him that he's troubled in spirit. Jesus is troubled. And here he is in chapter 14, verse 1, saying, don't be like that. Don't be troubled in heart. And of course, you'd have to think that even for Jesus, there's greater troubling to come, isn't there? He'll leave this room and he'll go to the Garden of Gethsemane and there amongst a crop of olive trees, he will bow down and pray. And in the course of those prayers, he will pray with such earnestness that the cup before him, his imminent death, might be taken from him. But then he reconciles to the fact that he will follow the Father's plan and submit himself to death. And there you get the only physical description of Jesus' suffering described when he sweats out drops of blood. Think about that. 
The crucifixion event, all the floggings and all the whippings and all the nailings, not a drop of blood is described. But there in the garden, as he's troubled in spirit, you see this man in anguish. But there's more trouble to come, isn't there, for him? For he knows what awaits him, a trial, a beating, a crucifixion. But he says to his disciples on this night in that upper room, do not let your hearts be troubled. And of course, then when you ask that other question I asked before, well, what does he do when he's troubled? It's actually interesting to notice what he does. If you were to go back and have a look at chapter 12 and verse 27, it says of Jesus, now is my soul troubled, what shall I say? What shall I do? And what does he say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. It's interesting what you discover in Jesus on the multiple occasions that he's described as being distressed or troubled, his immediate response is to turn to trust in his Father. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father. In fact, what Jesus does is exactly what the Psalms tell us to do. David, in Psalm 56 and verse 3, when I'm afraid, I... Put my faith in you, in God whose word I praise. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What shall flesh do to me? Are you troubled? Well, Jesus shows you a pattern of what to do in troubledness, and that is to trust. It seems such a simple equation, doesn't it? And on this occasion, for the disciples, it's imperative that they think about what it will mean for them. And I want to suggest that it's imperative that we understand what it will mean for us. Because we're all going to have struggles and turmoil and troubles in our life, things that will bring us distress and fear and worry. And there'll be a response that will come. And we could trust ourselves and ourselves alone and worry or recognise this call to trust and to believe. It's interesting because what John shows us in this gospel, in this passage, is that Jesus is very concerned to take his disciples that night from despair to belief. And he does it in one sentence. Because the remedy for their being troubled as they watch the events that are about to unfold that night and the next day and all those things that will take Jesus to the cross will be their belief. And so look what Jesus does. He he shows them what the object of their belief is to be. And it's actually not to be in the circumstances that surround them right then and there. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. He he says to them, as you look at what's about to happen, don't let your hearts be troubled because hold on to me despite what you see. Believe in God. Maintain that faith. Well, if you do that, maintain your faith in me in my person, in my character, in my power, in the things that you have seen me do. Because, listen, things are going to look like they're out of control tonight. 
you'll see Judas come and he'll kiss me. And I'll be betrayed. And I'll be tried. You'll see people spit at me. You'll, you'll have heard people previously, remember, that have called out and praised me as I've come into Jerusalem. But now they're going to bay for my blood and ask that Barabbas be set free. You'll see me be beaten. You'll see chunks of my beard ripped from my face. You'll see a crown of thorns forced down upon my head. You'll see nails, you'll see iron spikes driven through my wrists as I'm nailed to a cross. You'll see things that will trouble you. Things are going to look like defeat and betrayal and like an end. But understand this, just as you believe in God, maintain faith in him, believe also in God the Son. Jesus is telling them first and foremost who he is and that they should trust him Even in that state as he hangs on the cross, his power is no less. He is not powerless in that place. And it might look like evil forces are at work and winning, but it is not so. And you can well imagine, can't you, that if you were one of his disciples and you've heard of the betrayal and you've heard that Peter's going to do the denying and then you see all this unfold and you watch your leader die on a cross... Your faith is going to take a hit with that kind of events, with those kind of events. And so Jesus lovingly tells each of his disciples to hang on. Don't let your hearts be troubled in the midst of the present circumstances. Trust in him despite the appearance of things. You believe in God? Believe also in me. Jesus understands that at the heart of our fear is that we've relinquished a hold on who really is in control. And he wants his disciples then and now to understand that God remains enthroned even when God is dying on a cross for the sin of the world. But notice... Not only does Jesus say to his disciples, the remedy to your situation of troubledness is to know me and believe in me, but also he tells his disciples to trust him because he's preparing a place for them. That all the things that are about to happen might look like they are off script. It might look like someone else is at work, but don't forget, says Jesus, I am preparing a place for you. This is actually running out exactly as God has planned. I'm preparing a place for you. And so be clear that tonight and the next day and the three days after that, Jesus is getting ready for them a place. And it's all part of God's good purpose. Now, we probably need to work a little bit harder here just to understand what these verses mean as the disciples hear them. Jesus, as he speaks to them, speaks about preparing a place. Now, if you'd grown up reading other versions of the Bible, particularly if you're reading the King James Version, you may have been used to hearing the word that that where Jesus is going is to prepare many mansions In my father's house has many mansions. It was a word that got picked up from the Latin translation of the Bible, the Vulgate, and then crept into kind of popular thought. 
And I mean, it is a pretty popular thought, isn't it? The thought of Jesus going to prepare uh, many mansions for those who would trust in him. And if he goes and prepares the mansions for you, he'll come back and take you to be in your mansion that he's creating for you, preparing for you. And you think, terrific. You may have already started to think about what you want that mansion to look like and how it might be, you know. If God knows everything, he knows that I like iron and glass and steel and sandstone. And so, so it's, this is kind of what I'm looking forward to. And you want something a little bit more homely, a little bit more whatever it is. And, and so you've got your picture of what that place is going to be, that mansion that is awaiting you. Well, this may come of something of a disappointment, but I don't think so. In fact, it's not that he's preparing mansions for his followers in heaven, but a room in God's home. In fact, many rooms. It's an abundant welcome. There's provision for all and any that would come. The, the word that gets translated as, as rooms is an unusual word. It only appears twice in the New Testament. Both times it happens in John. Um, once here in chapter 14 and, and once again in chapter 14, not so surprisingly, over in verse 23, where Jesus replied and he says, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them and we will come to them and make our home, our dwelling. That place where we reign and rule, you'll be welcomed into that space with us. And I'm going and I'm preparing that dwelling for you. And when I go, I will do that. And in my going, I will return and take you to be with me. Now, so if the first thing is to say, just drop the thought of mansions for a moment and recognise what Jesus is doing is preparing a dwelling place for us. The second thing we probably need to deal with is the idea that Jesus went to heaven to kind of renovate or to build this or to establish this and to get that space ready and done. Um, it's to picture Jesus as if he's saying, listen, I'm, I'm going and I've got to get this thing built and done. It's, it's Jesus with a tool belt or an apron on and he's, he's folding it back and dusting it off. He's getting it ready, but it's not quite ready yet. But when it's ready and it looks just so and it's exactly as you need it to be, he'll come and he'll, he'll take you to be with him. But, but that actually isn't the picture that Jesus is wanting us to understand about the thing, the, the place that he's preparing us for. In, in fact, when Jesus speaks in the parable in Matthew 25 of the sheep and the goats, he talks about this same idea. And listen to this. It says, when the king will then say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. That this idea of God's dwelling, his kingdom, the place where he reigns, that's not an ongoing thing that's being made up and put together. That's something that he established from before the crea- in the creation of the world, prepared and ready. Some of us um, who are older like me um, listen to Keith Green, and as great as Keith is, <laughs> apparently, I still think so. You can go and listen up and you can dis- disagree, Spotify it. He has this song and this thought that goes around this idea that it took God six days to create this world. And look at it. 
for all of its majesty and the beauty of it. Six days and he pulled this off. And imagine, he's been working on heaven and preparing it for thousands of years. If he can do that in six days, imagine what the kingdom looks like and the room and the mansion that he's preparing. And yet what Jesus says is that God has established his dwelling. He's prepared this for us. The word prepared, no, isn't about building it or establishing it. It has to do with making God's house accessible to us. He has to go and to prepare a place for us because there's no way that we can get there. Something needs to be prepared or accomplished before we get access to the room in God's house. Otherwise, it's lost to us. We can't get there. You, you probably experienced this. I've um, started hiking again um, a little bit. Most of the time I do that on my own. Um, and typically I'm walking on well-established trails. There's a sign. I can have a map on my phone. I can sit off and walk it and there's a trail that's there. And in fact, about a year and a half ago, um, Maddie and I went for a walk, flint and steel track. And uh, this is actually the GPS that was in my pocket off my phone. We started at the red dot, we ended up, sorry, the green dot, ended back up at the red dot. And the plan, though, was to walk down the flint and steel track and, um, and then go and do a loop, because there's an old trail, apparently, that exists that completes that loop. Uh, most people will just go down on the established trail, down to the beach and back up again. But we went around the foreshore, and there's a very faint track around that foreshore there. But if you zoom in on the attempts that we made to find our way back up, <laughs> that is what our GPS looked like, and that is two hours. You remember it, Maddie? There were lots of tears. But Maddie's so empathetic, she's like, Dad, settle down, it'll be all right. <laughs> it wasn't all right. We found ourselves in two different gullies. You can see both of them there. And we'd set off and walk our way up and back down. But everywhere you looked, you would turn around and you'd look for a trail and there was nothing, not one anywhere. It's like we'd been dropped into this place and no one had established it for us. And this is what Jesus is saying. I'm going to blaze a trail for you to prepare Jesus is not in heaven right now preparing a place for us as if something more needs to be done. There's nothing that needs to be repaired or built in God's house. He's got to go on that night before his disciples to prepare the trail. See, here's the way that we should understand this verse. Jesus is saying, I'm going to prepare a place. And the cross prepared the way for all of God's people to enter into their room in God's house. He will tear through the bush, if you like. Let it rip him apart in order that behind him is an established track that all that follow, trusting in him, will gain access through. That's exactly why Jesus says that he is the way to the Father. See, it's interesting in this passage, isn't it, that Jesus goes to the cross and he dies for us and we're to understand that that's the way that he establishes or the way that he prepares a place for us. But notice how the thing transitions from the focus on a place to the person. I'm going to prepare a place for you and I am the way. That Jesus is the way to the Father. 
He's the way, he says, in fact, the only way in which sinners can enter into God's presence, the room, the kingdom that he has established before the creation of the world. And so as Jesus speaks of preparing a place and then transitions to the fact that he is the way, we're to understand how that actually helps us in dealing with what our troubled hearts might be otherwise telling us. See, Jesus prepares for his followers that they would be able to carry on after he is gone. But of course, you see the problem. He'll be taken from them. He's already told them he's going and they can't go where he is to be taken. There'll be a time when he's not physically with them for them to follow. And on this night, he's reminding them that he is the way. Before the full despair sits in. But Thomas and the others that are there, and perhaps most of us as well, think in terms of the destination, the place. Perhaps we think it's heaven, the Father's house. We, We want to think about that destination, but Jesus actually pulls them back and says, no, no, I want you to think about the the way to that place. The one that you will follow to get there. The destination really doesn't matter as much as the way to get there. So we think the other way around, don't we? We think that if we want to go somewhere, we, we drop the destination into Google Maps and then the, it, it kind of backfills, reverse engineers the, the route and that shows us the way. Give, tell me where, the place, and I'll put that in and then I'll know how to get there. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 you won't. No, no, I'll actually establish it. See, read the verses really closely. Jesus says to them, you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to them, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus almost seems to ignore Thomas at that point. He ignores the where question. He says, Jesus says to him, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. It's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus doesn't address the where that Thomas says is step one in knowing how to get there. Why not? Doesn't Thomas think, and don't perhaps you and I think, that first we need to know where we're going and then we'll select the best way to get there? But here Jesus is saying that is to get it all backwards because Jesus is the way to the Father. And the only way. And he's got that covered. And so just hang on to him. You believe in God, believe also in me. It's to say and to recognise that Jesus is the root, despite what the troubled things before them or us might look like. Hold on to him. For years I was watching Amazing Race uh, pretty religiously and I wanted to be on it. Amazing Race, the reality TV program that pits different teams, travel around the world. You get clues, last team to arrive at a certain destination is eliminated. First team at the last point gets a million bucks. It sounds terrific, right? And every place you arrive, it's probably a place you've never been before and you've got to find certain places. 
which to me sounds fantastic for most people, it seems like a horror story. But what happened in early episodes of that show is that people would race around, they'd find someone, say, tell us where this museum is or how to get there. And someone would say, you go down that road, you turn to the right, you go up some stairs, you'll find a barber, ask him, and then whatever. You get all these directions. But then people realise the best way to do it isn't that way. It's to find someone, say, do you know where that is? They say, yes. They say, take me. Here's 50 bucks. They get into a taxi and say, drive us. And all of a sudden, the person doesn't say to them, that is the way. They say, I am the way. It's to say to Maddie, jump on my back, Maddie. We're getting out of here and I'm going to take you up. We're just going to rip straight up here and I'm going to blaze that trail. And that night, the disciples hear Jesus say, I've got the destination. I know where that is. Don't you worry. I've secured that. My father's house, many rooms. And if it weren't so, I wouldn't have told you that there was. And if I go, then I'll take you. Don't worry about that. The thing you need to do is hang on to me and I will be the way. It's worth us coming to this text and thinking of Jesus as being us to us, the road that leads us to the Father. And there aren't many roads. Despite popular thought, there's just one. And it sounds arrogant, doesn't it? But how incredibly loving that God has made this provision and blazed that trail through sin and death for us, that there is this exclusive way that sinners can be made right with God so that we can reach that destination. Have we been reminded in this text then how important it is to follow Christ, to do what chapter 14 verse 1 says? Believe in God, believe also in me, says Jesus. For he is the way to the Father. But he doesn't stop there. He says he's also the truth of God and that Jesus is the life of God. He's the truth because he alone embodies God's revelation. Think about this because John sets this up really powerfully right in chapter 1 that Jesus is God incarnate in flesh. In fact, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, says John, and we beheld his glory, glory of God alone. He's the embodiment of God's revelation and when Jesus speaks, he speaks God's word and it's truth. Not just some truth, it's the full truth. It was truth for the disciples that night. And truth for the next few days as they saw him die and resurrect. And truth for all of their ministry. Truth that they bore as they themselves gave their lives for his cause. And it's truth for us in our time, isn't it? And for all people. Truth to be believed and to be followed. But he's also the life, isn't he? And John's established that throughout his telling of Jesus' life. He's the one that has come to give everlasting life. It's the conversation with Nicodemus in chapter 3, isn't it? That here's this life that is caught up in who Jesus is. That that means you have a new birth into a living hope. And that no one will come to the Father unless they have been made ready and presented to the Father by the Son. And so Jesus is saying, it's good if I go. If I go, I get to prepare and blaze the trail for you. And so Jesus tells his disciples that night and us tonight, do not be troubled. 
Not, not at that macro level of whether or not God is in control and sovereign and, and for you and able to forgive you and love you eternally and welcome you into his kingdom. Jesus tells us, don't be troubled. I'm about to go and take your wrath or the wrath that your sin deserves so that you can follow me to the Father. Jesus is the way that must be followed, the truth that must be believed and the life that must be lived. And there's more that could be said, but perhaps as we close, it would be best just to meditate for a moment on what it is that God might be saying to you and to me tonight. Because if you were to stop and ask the question, what's the way that you've been following? The path. What's the way that has been determining the decisions that you've been making and the priorities that you've been setting? Has it it been him and your belief in him? Or has that waned over time? And is God's word and his spirit perhaps encouraging you to pursue him or to stand as you have or perhaps rebuking you to say that you have drifted and you've beaten your own way through the bush but not following him, the one who is the way. What's he saying about the way that you've been following? And what's the truth that you've been believing Is it his truth? Or has truth become a bit more subjective and a bit more relative and a bit more like kind of the air that we breathe in the culture around us? I was listening to a sermon this week by Dick Lucas. It's probably a sermon that's about 30 years old, I suspect. I didn't look it up. But in that sermon, he's lamenting that he's living at a time when Truth has just dissolved. And people want some stuff but not other stuff to be true. So he's saying actually people like the idea of life and truth and they like the idea of the way that might even be able to take them into this incredible future, this kingdom, this house with abundant provision. They like what 6a has to say in chapter 14, but they don't want 6b, the exclusive claim, that truth, the idea that no one comes to the Father except through Christ. I I want to follow the way and the truth and the life. I want that. I want the life, in fact, that's abundant. But I don't want that. And Dick Lucas makes the point, you don't get 6a unless you get 6b first unless you go through Christ and the single way that he has opened up then no one comes and then as you come look what you get that's the truth is that the truth that you've been believing or have you believed other things that have prioritized your life if in Jesus God has come among us in person to reconcile his rebellious lost world, then it follows necessarily that through him and him alone is the way to God. What's the truth 
that you've been believing? But what's the life that you've been pursuing? Is it a life in step with what Jesus is holding out to his disciples? Saying, believe in me as you believe in my Father. In fact, Jesus, back in chapter 10 of John's Gospel, has told them that, in fact, he's come to bring the full totality of life, a life in all of its abundance. But, of course, others come and they seek to tell you that they're giving you those things, abundance, life, life that could be lived with all the success and pleasures and adornments that you could possibly want, but they, in fact, are actually robbing from you. It's a thief that comes to steal and to kill and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. But if you started to think that maybe the life that Jesus is offering and calling you to is robbing you, that he's the killjoy that you don't want, is that the life that you are pursuing? Jesus comes to his disciples, says, Don't be troubled. I'm in control, I'm enthroned. And I am the way, I am the truth and the life. And it occurred to me this morning, I was in my office and just thinking this morning around this passage and I was imagining how this was heard by those first disciples, particularly Peter. He's just had Jesus tell him that you're going to deny me. Here's a troubled spirit if ever there was one. When you turn over to Acts chapter 4, though, you see something remarkable. You see one who actually takes hold of who Jesus is and believes in him. And after the cross and after the resurrection and after the Spirit has been poured out, Peter and John have an encounter with a lame man. They heal him and it causes a great unrest, so much so that the Sanhedrin, sorry, the Sadducees and others come, they're miffed about what's taken place. And in verse 8 of chapter 4 of Acts, listen to this, then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account this day for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed." Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Does he sound like he's troubled in spirit? Sounds incredibly bold, doesn't he? Does it sound like he's actually held on to the life? Does he understand the truth? Does he know that there is just one way? Well, he does know there's one way. Listen to what he says next. Verse 12 of chapter 4 of Acts. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which they may be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realised that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's hard for us to even place ourselves in that room that night with the 11 listening to Jesus. But your word takes us into that space a room full of troubled hearts. And Lord, we know what transpires next, the events of your passion, where you die for the sin of the world and where you demonstrate your power over death. You indeed demonstrate that you are the one 
who goes before to prepare a place and you establish that, blazing that trail, taking our sin and our separation from you. And as we look to the cross, we see you there, the embodiment of the indestructible life of the ever-living God given over for us. And you called on those disciples then to trust, to believe. And so, Heavenly Father, would you look with mercy upon us tonight, where our faith is weakened, where we've drifted from the way, where we've let go of your truth or we've lived our own life, Lord, would you convict us? Would you place, Lord, confessing words upon our tongues? And might we stand like Peter does with the bold proclamation, knowing that you, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, crucified but raised by God from the dead, is the one who is the capstone, the one supreme over all things, the one in whom salvation is found and no other name. And so, Heavenly Father, hold us true to those convictions and where we don't have them, Lord, would you draw us into your kingdom tonight that we might know that welcome, that there are many rooms that you have prepared and that you have taken our wayward hearts, our failure to speak truth and lives that have been given over to ourselves and you have died in our place and offer salvation to us. And so, Heavenly Father, call us into your kingdom and establish us there and give to us a boldness to proclaim and to continue on with untroubled hearts We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.